Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Sam Delaney, and this is The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. My guest this week is Charles Mosley, author of a book called Why We Shouldn't Drink Alcohol. Now, you might not have heard of Charles before, but The Reset is about talking to interesting people with different stories to tell and I certainly think Charles fits that bill. I encountered him on Twitter recently where his handle is shouldn't drink. I was intrigued. Turns out he has his own philosophy around booze covered in the book that differs from a lot of the stuff you might hear in places like AA. He's pretty militant. He's kind of zero tolerance towards alcohol. It can sound extreme and you might not immediately agree with everything he says in the chat you're about to hear as you'll hear I didn't either but he is passionate and convincing and I'm always interested in different ways people get sober not everyone has to do 12 steps there are other options out there I personally try to take bits of wisdom from every idea I encounter anyway I found this chat truly fascinating and educational and I hope you do too Charles welcome to the reset thank you Thanks for joining me. Um, we crossed paths on Twitter and I saw that your Twitter handle is, well, remind me of it. Shouldn't Drink is my short version. But, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm the author of a book called Why We Shouldn't Drink Alcohol. Yeah. So I'm immediately hooked into this. Why don't you start things off by, by summarising the philosophy book that underpins that book? I think... First of all, I would say that alcohol is very misunderstood. Mm. Um, I used to drink regularly and I used to wake up in the mornings thinking, why did I drink so much? Why did I go out for a couple of pints and end up drinking five or six, making a fool of myself? Why did the promise of a good evening turn into something that maybe wasn't so pleasant? And particularly in the morning when you look back on the night before, I quite often think, at what point did I lose control? And that's an interesting thing, the loss of control. Um, drink number one of an evening drink number two I would say a person is in control but over time the more you drink the less you're in control uh, and this this concern about my own ability to control myself started to lead me to do research about alcohol and think about alcohol um, it is a substance that uh, has the power to cause you to drink and drink again and in that way it's addictive and actually, some of the books I read and some of the ways that I started to think about alcohol are slightly at odds with the general consensus around alcohol. Um, I think people see drinking as pleasurable and then 
uh, not drinking then becomes a hardship or something difficult because in effect, we don't really question the fact that alcohol is pleasurable. When I started to think really about alcohol as a substance, I realized really quite quickly realized that it wasn't particularly pleasurable. Um, one of the analogies I use is uh, if you were to have a shot of vodka in a library, how would it affect you? There's no, there's no real pleasure in a shot of vodka. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't give you a, a drug high. It doesn't relax you or calm you. It just basically, it's an anesthetic. Mm -hmm. And if you get to the nub of what alcohol is really about, it's quite an unpleasant, poisonous anesthetic. Mm -hmm. A shot of vo vodka will make you feel a little bit woozy. A bottle of vodka could kill you. And in between, you know the phases. Uh, drunkenness, being unsteady on your feet, losing control of your emotions, losing control of your judgment, uh, potential physical harm, coma and death. You know, those things aren't really pleasurable. When you start considering the substance itself and separate it from the way that we drink socially, uh, the I think the it, it becomes quite clear that actually it can be quite an unpleasant controlling factor for people and the pleasure isn't really there. The pleasure is in a sense of illusion. Uh I see exactly what you're saying, and I agree, but I know there'll be people listening and go, hang on a minute, There, is, we've all had fun yeah. whilst drinking. I mean, yeah. even I, I agree with you. I think, oh, my God, like alcohol, I just remember feeling, if I'm honest, most of the time you just feel anxious and uncomfortable and are always yeah. slightly hot and sweaty. And so I, I totally buy into that, but I cannot deny that I've had some of the times of my life yeah. while I was pissed. Not towards the end. It was just torture. I couldn't stop. It was horrible, but I it, it wasn't giving me any pleasure. But my younger days, I had fantastic times. So, you know, we have to get past that, don't we? Because there will be people who are just cynical about what you're saying. But I think I think it's true. I don't think we should ever say we don't have fun drinking because we obviously do. And we've all had fun drinking. What I would say, though, is that we live in a society that's so um, centered around alcohol that most of us don't really socialize without it. I mean, I've got plenty of friends who I say, oh, I'm, I've written a book about alcohol. My friend said, oh, alcohol, I can take it or leave it. Oh, can you? Okay, that's good. When was the last time you had a social night without drinking? She went, never. <laughs> I've yeah. never socialized as an adult without drinking. Can you imagine a wedding where people don't drink? Can you imagine a party where people don't drink? We just don't do it. And it was a bit of a revelation to me. When I stopped drinking about five years ago, I started to do all the normal social things, but without alcohol. They're great fun. Parties are amazing. You know, I had a great night. I have fun nights down the pub. But when it gets to about 10.30, 11 o'clock, and people start getting pissed and annoying, it's time to leave. One of the things I would say about a crowd of people drinking as well is that they all drink at the same rate. So if you imagine the pub from 7 to 9, the vibe of the pub between 7 and 9 is the sort of early stage drinking the vibe of a pub between 7 and 11 and 11 and 1 in the morning is very, very different. Mm. Effectively, everybody's in the, in the pub environment getting steadily drunk at the same rate. And in effect, they don't really stand out. If you drunk the quantity that you might have been drinking in your later stages in the pub in a social environment, you would stand up like a sore thumb. Imagine if you had to go, for instance, to a parent-teacher association evening meeting for your kids at school and you drunk the way you drunk in the pub, you'd, I mean, you'd be shunned. You'd be, you'd be out the door mm. in no time. Drunkenness really works when you're in a, a group of other drinkers. Uh, once I started to realize that I wasn't enjoying myself in those situations, uh, I started to realize that actually the social aspect is the pleasurable thing. 
And one of the things I, I did a bit of research about is when we are social grouping humans, when we go out to mingle with people, we're typically shy and a little bit nervous at first. And as a drinker, I would have said, oh, I'm a little bit shy and nervous about this social situ situation. I'll have a, a lager that will relax me. Actually, it doesn't really relax you. Um, what does relax you, though, is mingling with people and chatting and mm. just easing yourself into the social situation. At first, everyone's nervous. It's perfectly normal. That's how nature designed us. But as we warm up, we start telling jokes and we're laughing. We get this sort of bond going between other humans. And nature rewards us by giving us positive chemicals, dopamine, whatever, whatever they are. We have a natural re reward system that gives us positive feelings for being in a group of other humans. Now, when we go to a party, we have a time at that party where we experience the same thing. We might have a couple of glasses of dry white wine, and then about 9 or 10 o'clock, we feel that sort of buzz. Hey, this buzz of the party is amazing. It's fantastic. Well, if you didn't have the alcohol there, you'd still have the buzz. You'd still feel the same reward system that nature gives us for socialising. But we mistake that positive feeling. We believe that the alcohol was the thing that gave us the warm, positive buzz. And then forever, as drinkers, we associate the two things. Oh, I'm going to a party. I must have a bottle of wine or a couple of shots of vodka or some cans of lager. We don't believe that we can do these things without alcohol. Mm. Every non-drinker, you included, I hope, knows that you can go to a social event and have a great time, drink coffee or water or a cup of tea or just chat to people. I think that, um, that yeah, I, I think that is my experience. But some things are more boring. But what I choose to believe, in fact, what I, I know is that not being pissed makes you more discerning. And therefore, some of the things you were going to, some of the things you go to sober are quite shit. But that yeah. means that it wasn't that it, that means that they were only bearable if you anesthetized yourself. That's what I think. So I probably go to less things. Yeah. But that's because I am, I can now see very clearly the things that are simply not worth attending because yeah. they are boring or, you know, make you uncomfortable or, or, or whatever. There's so many things that really were just boring and you kind of forced yeah. your way through it by drinking. I mean, work drinks is a great example. I mean, you know, you work in some, some places you have great colleagues and you go out and have great fun with them. But, you know, we've all worked at places that are so bloody boring and then there's work drinks and they have to be drinks because it couldn't be work coffee because the only way you can get through that sort of uncomfortable, awkward, contrived social situation is to literally anaesthetise yourself. So I do think it makes you more, it makes you more discerning and it kind of, it's made me more imaginative about the ways in which I pursue fun and pleasure because yeah. I, from like, I mean, really I was talking to my mate about it the other day, like pretty much from the age of 12, really, you know, alcohol became the sort of, you know, fast track device to what I perceived as having fun, which means yeah. I never really engaged in any other kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I went. To, I played football. I went to football. I might have done other bits and bobs, but they all surrounded alcohol in some way. Even playing football was about going to for beers afterwards. I had so few hobbies, and I had so few. I, I was. I think it, alcohol makes us quite makes us lack curiosity about life, doesn't it? I mean, I'm sure for you, in the five years that you've been sober, ev everyone I know who's been sober for a period of time has all sorts of new hobbies and interests as a result. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it that that's the other thing. It really does limit you, doesn't it? But I mean, 
what why do you think that some people get addicted and some people are able to take it and take it or leave it now this is something that i talk about in the book and i don't agree with 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 that premise actually right. and that's one of the biggest misunderstandings i think around alcohol so i've noticed i, I had a look at some of your previous writings mm. and i see that you have written before about problem drinkers mm. so there's this idea in society that some people are in control of their drinking and some people have lost control of their drinking we have problem drinkers and we have normal drinkers or we have alcoholics and we have everyone else mm. in fact alcohol is an addictive drug and i'm going to talk in a minute about how it works i hope if you give me time um alcohol is an addictive drug and if you take a small amount of it you're likely to drink more so um if you have a glass of wine, you're very likely to have another glass of wine. And if you have half a bottle of wine through the course of a week and you do that regularly, over time, your increase will your intake will tend to increase. You'll tend to drink more over time. Um, because alcohol is an, ad an addictive drug, it doesn't really matter how much of it you drink. You're on a, on a journey. You're a drinker. You might drink two pints a week or you might drink 20 pints a week. 20 pints is worse than two pints. But two pints is not in control, where 20 pints is not in control. Mm. It's just a, a continuum. Two pints of lager is more control than 20 pints of lager. But there shouldn't be a line between people in control and people not. When uh, a lot of people get to the very late stages of drinking, as you've experienced, uh, you might think, uh, you know, you look at people in restaurants, for instance, having a glass of wine, you think, oh, I wish I could be in control like them. I wish I could not have to drink 20 pints in a night and I could just drink two pints, or I wish I could stop at two glasses of wine. Mm. Well, this person is still at a meal who believes certain things about alcohol that are not true. Like, for instance, they can't enjoy a French meal in a fancy restaurant without a glass of posh wine with it. They're still drinking something that is effectively poisonous and anesthetic and is addictive and is totally unnecessary. I mean, once you decide that you can enjoy a French meal without a glass of wine to go with it, you realise actually the wine is doesn't taste very very nice, doesn't add anything to the meal. It's not particularly pleasant to anaesthetise yourself. I've, you know, it's, it's better to go for a meal and not drink. So I think we need to be very wary of this idea of people who are in control and not in control, of problem drinkers and not. I think it's better to just think of all drinkers as drinkers. And the point of my book really is to say, rather than... Uh, think about controlling some amount of alcohol as the de facto way to show you're not a problem drinker. It's best to just not drink at all. Mm. And rather than see alcohol as this beautiful, amazing, perfect thing that you're then deprived of, actually, if you start seeing it the way I do, is a poisonous, unpleasant anaesthetic that really only uh, controls you when you drink it or, or prevents you from keeping control, then the best amount of alcohol to drink is zero. Well, you, that's it's quite hard line, but it's not a million miles away. You know that there, there are huge parallels with with twelve step Alcoholics Anonymous treatment, in as much as, of course, that. And the biggest breakthrough I ever had was when a therapist and addiction expert said to me very clear, very clearly, "You have to stop. There is no cutting down. Cutting down is not something that actually even exists. It doesn't. It's a it's a myth. It's a fantasy. It's up to you." stop or don't stop there's there's nothing in between so i i agree with you but what i am also thinking is that you know people like me and you in some in some ways we're both communicating with with the wider public about this issue and part of me just thinks wow this is a lot to take in 
for someone who's still drinking. There will be people listening to this. I'm already envisaging emails saying, oh, you know, it lost me. I mean, I love a drink. I don't get pissed, but I love a drink. It, you know, it makes you feel good. And I'm with you. I'm listening. I, don't, I, I question whether or not I ever genuinely did enjoy drinking. I think it was a cultural construct. But you have to take baby steps with these things, don't you? And it's hard to convince people that actually their delicious glass of, you know, white burgundy that they're having in their posh restaurant is nothing more than a glass of poison. I mean, I yeah. suppose, how do people react to your philosophy? Yeah, so so I just I wouldn't say simply it's nothing more than a glass of poison. Think about the first time that you drank alcohol or that you came across alcohol. As a child, someone probably put a glass of wine under your nose and you sniffed it, and it's tasted rancid. It smells rancid. I mean, mm. alcohol is fruit that's rotted or grain mm. that's rotted. It's effectively a process of, of fruit breaking down. It's not designed for you to drink. It's designed for, to smell and taste acrid. So your first experience of smelling a glass of wine is like, oh, that doesn't smell very nice. But parents drink it. They call it an acquired taste, which means you have to learn to accept that something tastes horrible. If you watch people drink shots, you know, drink a shot of tequila and they call that horrible effect. Like it is disgusting. And wine really doesn't taste good, but wine drinkers have learned to acquire the taste. The other thing about the first time you drink or the first few times you drink is that when you first drink, your first experience is thinking, oh, I feel a bit woozy. I feel a bit lightheaded. I don't feel particularly good. But your mates at that point slap you on the back and go, come on, mate, you know, man up. You need to learn yeah. to take it. Okay, fine. So you drink a couple more pints and then your body tells you it's poisonous by vomiting out of your system. <laughs> your body shows you through your lack of physical control. You're already feeling a bit woozy. And then luckily you take yourself outside the pub or to the toilet and you vomit. Your body is saying to you, this is not for you. It's not a natural substance. It's not like drinking orange juice. It's something poisonous and unpleasant. And if you carry on, you'll kill yourself. You know you've got to control the amount you drink. So even your first few drinking experiences, unpleasant physical sensations, unpleasant taste, a nasty smell when you first smell it, and it makes you, it makes you vomit. It makes, causes your body to try and eject it from you. You've already been told several times by your natural defences, this is not for you to consume. But your mates, the other drinkers around you, convince you to do the same. There's parallels with other addictive drugs. If you think about our first experience of most addictive drugs, your first experience with heroin. I've never done it, but I believe that first time you take heroin, you probably vomit, you probably feel very anesthetized, and your mates say the same thing. Oh, you've got to keep trying and learn how to accept this mm. addictive, unpleasant drug. Your first experience is smoking. Your mate gives you a cigarette, you take a puff, your body says no to the poison, and then you cough. <laughs> And then your mates say, oh, no, you've got to learn to keep it down and you've got to learn to tolerate the effect. And these aren't pleasant things, you know. How do people unlearn this stuff, though? It's a, a change of mindset. So um, I really believe that, that addiction is the result of two things. There is a, addiction is basically the result of an addictive substance like uh, heroin or nicotine or alcohol or cocaine. And a belief. And the belief really is this is a positive experience. Mm. Now, the first time you take cocaine with your mates, it probably is a positive experience. The first few times that you drink, as you say, out with friends in a social environment, it definitely is positive. But as time goes on, you can change that mindset to realize the thing that maybe was introduced to you as positive or you learned to believe was positive, maybe isn't positive 
you know, I see troublesome addicts in my local area who are addicted to various substances. And I think your life is not going well. You're living on the streets. You're sleeping in someone's garden. You cannot really believe that taking crack cocaine is positive. At the moment you put it to your lips, you have a positive sensation, but the overall um, uh, impact on your life is not positive. With alcohol, the first few times you drink, you're with a crowd of social people, it goes well. But I think the more you drink over the time, the more you realize you lose control, you uh, fail to get stuff done, you add stress into your life. And one of the things about alcohol that's very um, unpleasant, I think, is the way it works with your defense mechanisms. So we already mentioned the vomiting part. When you drink, you cause your body to produce a stress hormone called cortisol, and it makes you anxious. So when you drink a glass of wine, you're going to immediately, 15 minutes after you drink the wine, you're going to have a uh, raised cortisol level in your system, and it's going to make you feel a little bit anxious and edgy. As the wine wears off, you immediately think, oh, I fancy another glass of wine because the anxious, edgy feeling is unpleasant. So the addictive nature of alcohol is that one glass of wine or one beer will make you want another one about 45 minutes later. Now, because of the increased levels of cortisol in your system, as you drink over the course of an evening, you go to bed, you get bad sleep, and in the morning you wake up and you've still got those elevated levels of cortisol. And a lot of people after drinking, the day after drinking, feel anxious and edgy. And that for me, the sum total of all these things, when I sat rational and I thought about it, do I like feeling anxious and edgy the next day? No. Do I like feeling that I lost control at some point in the night? No. Do I like the sensation of, at the end of pint number one, feeling a sudden urge for pint number two? By the end of pint number two, feeling an urge for pint number three. That's very weird. We don't question it. Mm. And when I thought rationally about all this, I realized actually the total experience of drinking alcohol is negative. You're being super rational. And so much that surrounds addiction is super emotional. By definition, it's like not rational. So I can't imagine how someone who is living on the street and is addicted to crack or alcohol would possibly respond to you know what you're saying there is there's watertight there's nothing i can argue with but at the same time it's the, these decisions that you make are emotional you need to look at a bigger picture don't you life gets people down people are confused people are overwhelmed they are stressed they are anxious they are looking for a short-term fix a sticking plaster almost every moment of every day i mean that cliche of the businessman coming in from work and you know, Jerry from The Good Life going straight over to his decanter of scotch and pouring himself on. That is something that applies in one way or another to, to people all over the world. And that is emotional, isn't it? Because we think we need something that is going to immediately let us switch off and numb ourselves, you know, yeah. because the alternative to that is what? Religion, philosophy, therapy. Well, fine, but that shit takes a long, long time to get your head around. And I'm a busy guy. So for now, this large scotch will do the trick instead. Thanks very much. This is this is the problem, isn't it? It's an interesting point, but you and I have learned something that we both knew as children. My 12-year-old son came home today stressed from school. He didn't reach for the scotch. You know, we had a chat about something that happened at school and he calmed down. When you come home from a stressful day, you don't reach for the scotch. No, but I've, I've, there's two things. One, I had to, I wouldn't say I hit rock bottom, but I had to develop something that was quite clearly problematic and affecting other areas of my life in order for, to give me the sort of desperation 
to jump off yeah. that train. No amount, I think of myself as a fairly rational bloke, but no amount of rational. Like if I'd been sitting with you six, seven years ago, I'd have just been laughing to myself, you know. And okay. so uh, uh, even though I know that everything you're saying is, is totally true. And so, you know, once you've, once you pick those things up for all the reasons you say, most of them cultural and social, a lot of them I would say are to do with the huge forces of like marketing and consumerism. Yeah. These are massively powerful things. And once they've got you by the balls, it's really hard to unlearn when it's just a, just by being seriously rational. Yeah. I, it's, it's definitely not an easy one. And I, I don't, you know, I don't claim to have answers for, for anyone who sees alcohol as a crutch. But once you realize that the alcohol is not doing you any favors, that should be and should make it easier to give up. But doesn't everyone who drinks, even the people that you're, because you're saying like, it's just the same for someone who just said. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Two glasses of wine. They're all using it as a crutch. Well, y- yes, not just as a crutch. There's a. There's lots of cultural norms and pressure from other drinkers mm. and pressure from marketing that would convince people to drink. And, and you're right, you know, you're going to go out in social situations and everybody's going to tell you, you have to drink a glass of wine with dinner. You have to have a glass of wine after work to mm. relax. You have to, um, uh, I don't know, have a pint of lager after the football with your mates. Uh, if you are at the point where you are isolated with alcohol and drinking regularly at home, and you recognize maybe that you have what you might have called a problem with alcohol uh, or even more of a problem with alcohol, it's, it's definitely not easy for anybody to change what they're doing. But a bit like, uh, I don't know, attitudes to smoking. If you can understand how cigarettes work, if you can understand that one cigarette really only does one thing for you, and that's to make you want another cigarette, as soon as you figure that out, or that a cigarette is sold to you as something that relaxes you when you've come home from work or, oh, I'm going to relax, I have a fag. Once you realise that the cigarette has caused you tension, that then another cigarette relieves, you see smoking as a a trick and it's quite easy to give up. Mm. The same with alcohol. If you recognise that coming home from work and having a a whiskey, for instance, doesn't actually relax you, it just anaesthetises you. And actually true relaxation comes from... um, getting your tasks done or just finishing work or seeing friends, uh, that change of mindset can happen. The point I'm trying to make in the book is not that this is easy or that this is something that you can just flick a switch and change your viewpoint. But I've tried to set out in a book about, I would say about 125 misunderstandings of alcohol that if you can switch them, 
you will find it much easier to give up. Mm. The way that I phrase it in, in short terms is that effectively alcohol plays a trick on you. The trick is that you think you need it. And when you drink it, it makes you want more of it. Once you learn that that's a trick, it's a, effectively a con, and you spend a lot of money doing it, then it should be easy to think, I don't want to be tricked by this anymore. I don't want to be fooled into consuming the alcohol that I don't need. The focus is a lot on the substance itself. But, yeah. you know, what, what do you, how influential, even once you've consumed all of this, you know, in-depth understanding of the impact that this that alcohol has on you, on your mind and your mood, you know, how powerful an adversary is marketing and, you know, movies, TV. And other drinkers. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether you're watching all the classic shows, I'm re-watching The Sopranos at the moment, and they're non-stop drinking in it, right? And it looks glamorous because they're gangsters and they're in nice suits and yeah. Mad Men is a classic, I, you know. Or I read a book once, it was about an alcoholic, but it was so well written that it described his drinking in this luxuriant sort of almost sophisticated way that I remember telling the author when I met him once that he'd made my drinking worse by describing drinking yeah. and the ceremony of drinking in in such like a beautiful poetic way. That suggests you these are these are big things, aren't they? These speak they are. They, 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 these are what your rational philosophy is up against you know you know like the, the the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other that that's yeah, that, that's what you're up against aren't you what would, yeah. do, would you would, i mean presumably you would like to see a societal change a shift yeah so so i would say first of all on the marketing and the pressure you think about i think about the pressure coming from three areas really mm. one is other drinkers everybody you know wants you to drink because they drink yeah. that's frustrating yeah two is the Overt marketing, that's, you know, when you watch uh, the Euro 2020s, it's mm. all sponsored by Heineken or Carling. You know, there's pure sponsorship and marketing of actual alcohol at you. And then the third thing, as you say, is the glamorization in Hollywood. So you you mentioned The Sopranos. I was thinking of, um, I watched a drama recently about some Mexican drug dealers. Mm. And at every opportunity, they sit down with each other. They pour a huge shot of tequila mm. and they drink this tequila. And that's part of being a man in a crime yeah. syndicate. Yeah. You know, if I had to do drug dealing and I wanted to be good at it, I wouldn't drink tequila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're right. So, so it's pushed at us in terms of like glamorization and maybe um, you think about the way wine is marketed as something of heritage mm. in something of status. And mm. that then is shown to you to be part of the way you, present yourself as middle class and sophisticated yeah you know if you go to a wedding there has to be champagne at a wedding you can't not drink champagne mm. and champagne is the same rotten grape juice that's yeah. uh, in every other bottle of wine as far as i'm concerned but it's 35 quid instead of 10 pounds mm. this has got a bit of foil around the top um it's not easy to to get past the pressure but i wonder from your point of view as an ex-drinker i wonder if you feel the same way that when you see that stuff on the screen my stomach turns a little bit. I think, oh, that's not very nice. Why are you doing that to yourself? Why do you need a large glass of dry wine? That's not going to do you any favours. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you you come to just see it as the the world's biggest and greatest, most sophisticated scam. You yes. know, I often say about cocaine, there's a lot of similarities in what you're saying. I, I, my thing on cocaine is no one's ever enjoyed taking cocaine, right? Yes. That's something I believe. I think that it it's a drug that makes you feel 
awful, on edge, tense, anxious, i.e. an extreme version of all of the things that, uh, you know, those of us who feel uh, who often feel overwhelmed and stressed by modern life are trying to escape. Right. Um, But it's like incredible because, you know, you keep wanting exactly like you say, like you take it, you feel immediately you're tense and freaked out and the opposite of relaxed. And your only response is, I better take some more. That yeah. might make it better. Or very often you think, I better also drink some alcohol to go with it because then maybe that will take the edge off. And all these yeah. things working that way. And it just seems, you know, when you when you're when you step back, you just look at it and you're like, my God, that is the most adv- you're almost impressed by what a sophisticated scam booze yeah. and drugs is. And you're right. If I if I think about drinking, I think a lot of people also think that if if you're a former drinker and you describe yourself as like a recovering addict or anything like that, they think that you're constantly locked into a, uh, a terrible sort of tragic kind of fight against your urges to drink. Yeah. Right. That's, that's what I used to think when I m- met former addicts, I would be like, Oh my God, the, the demons that must be stirring in them the whole time yeah. while I'm trying to hold a conversation with them. Probably all the th- probably while they're talking to me, I'm slowly turning into a bottle of whiskey or a pint of, of cool beer, right? That like, you know, like in a cartoon when the character's starving. And it's so funny because now I think the last thing that it sickens me to think of drinking. Yeah. For the reasons you're describing, actually, I, I imagine and I have vivid recall of the physical response to drinking and how nauseating it is, right? Yeah. And how immediately everything becomes 10 times more difficult. But you yeah. get so used to that feeling because most of us in this country had started to drink at such a young age that you don't realise because it's just familiar. You don't realise, fucking hell, this is made just that I'm just sitting in a room, but suddenly sitting in this room feels three times more difficult because I've had one glass of alcohol. Just literally sitting in a room feels more difficult because you don't know what to do with yourself. Your body temperature rises. You're anxious. You're kind of like, shit, I've got to have another drink. I've got to do something mad. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's um, it's weird, but it does take quite a lot of space. But I, I do like the fact, ultimately, the simplest thing that really appeals to me about what we say is, is that it's just the idea that you are not giving up something good and that well i you know i've got various people i know in my life who are addicts or or really really aspire to give up drinking but when i have conversations with them about it i can never get past they think the nature of the conversation is me trying to convince them why it's worth sacrificing this great pleasure yeah. And it's like, no, no, this is not the starting point of this conversation. And that's what really appeals to me about what you've been saying, is that that notion to just convince people that you are not giving up a good thing, you are actually taking up a good thing, which is sobriety. I would say, yeah, and I, I don't use the word sobriety, but that's just because I'm slightly reactionary to the, to the yeah. consensus. I would actually say it's just freedom. You're you're yes, free. Yes, that's perfect. Free of the yeah. need to drink alcohol. Like if I go to a wedding, I don't have to think, "Oh my God, can I handle all the champagne? Will I be able to stop at five glasses and not be too drunk and not vomit and not fight with someone and not lose my coat?" <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I like the freedom. I, I wake up on a Saturday morning knowing that oh. I won't be home. I like feeling free of the substance. And it's interesting you mentioned that you said your approach is about the substance because. 
one of the challenges we have in society is that because so many people drink, the people who are our practitioners, so they're scientists and uh, medical professionals and the people who set policy and the people who govern us, they are all drinkers. Mm. And so when they decide to set policy, they say, say things like, oh, well, it's okay for us to drink a certain amount, but don't drink too much. Yeah. So they, we have guidance from the NHS that says you can consume up to 14 units a week. Well, because it's addictive, those people who drink 14 units will probably drink 15 units and 16 mm. units. Very bad advice. Um, mm. <coughs> the, the focus on the, the substance, though, is at odds with this sense in society that if you've lost control of your drinking or you're a problem drinker or something has happened to you, then there must be something wrong with you. And this is where this issue of um, counselling that is focused on you and your emotional problems or trauma is a classic one. Mm. A lot of practitioners will tell you that problem drinking is the result of trauma. Um, there's plenty of examples of times when we, uh, in this country, for instance, we had a, a, a drinking craze when gin was extremely cheap, a mm. gin, gin craze. Uh, there was no tax on gin. Gin was sold along the River Thames. It was just there was people necking gin left, right, and centre, no control over it. The entire nation went gin crazy. There was a lot of mental illness, a lot of physical illness, and a lot of people addicted to gin as a result. And those people weren't addicted to gin because they were all traumatised or because they all had emotional problems. It was just because gin was addictive and very cheap. Mm. And it's the focus really on people who have emotional problems or people who have trauma of people who have suffered in the past isn't particularly helpful. The focus on the substance, which is what you mentioned earlier, alcohol is addictive and poisonous and actually unpleasant when you, when you unpick it, is much more helpful for people who want to give up or be free of it. But, but, similar- but just to jump in there, just to give the, the alternative point of view, um, yes, of course, not everyone who, who is a drinker or get, develops that sort of a problem has necessarily suffered trauma. Yeah. However, people do suffer trauma and that does lead to all sorts of mental problems later in life. And the most common thing for anyone to do is to seek distraction rather than to confront the deeper problems. And it happens and it might, and it's coincidence that actually because of the way society is set up, because of all the cultural and social forces that you have mentioned, when you are looking around for something, and you know there are people who've suffered trauma who become addicted to sex or become addicted to shopping or gambling or whatever, all sorts of other things, the gym, sometimes something that's you know supposedly that's healthy. But the most one of the most powerful things they turn to because it's legal and so heavily marketed and has such you know strong cultural and social roots is alcohol. Yes. So I think that you know I see what you're saying that you don't want to sort of just put it all down to these emotional problems. I, but I do think that people with trauma look for distraction and front yeah. of the queue is often alcohol. Definitely. And so if, if uh, an individual has suffered trauma in the past and uh, has options, um, treatment, uh, acceptance, etc. I don't, you know, I'm not a specialist and I, mm. I certainly don't want to get involved in, um, in trying to sort of diagnose mental uh, health trauma yeah. or difficulties. But if a person has the option of seeking treatment or have the, has the op- option of accepting and um, just being prepared to, to live with the trauma or drinking themselves into oblivion every night, 
you and I, having drunk in the past, uh, would know that the option of choosing alcohol as a temporary numbness is actually going to be overall detrimental to this person. Mm. And I, I think anyone who uh, who decides to, to say, oh, I'm troubled, therefore I'm going to have a drink. When you wake up the next morning, you have elevated levels of stress hormone in your mm. system. You feel anxious. The trauma hasn't gone away. It's the same trauma. You now have a hangover. You didn't do anything about it the night before. You effectively put off the problem by drinking. Uh, the result of that type of behavior is really only going to be negative. Oh, yeah. But I think that's, you know, in some ways, alcohol, if you've got trauma or underlying emotional issues, what alcohol can often do, and in a way it's a positive, is that it alerts you to those things, right? Because you are doing something that, as you have described, is completely self-destructive and counterproductive, and you are doing it repeatedly. And that is highly irrational, problematic behaviour. And what that does is often flag to individuals and their loved ones around them and, and hopefully medical professionals. Well, this person clearly has got some issues that need dealing with that they're currently trying to deal with themselves. They're effectively attempting self-medication, but they are doing it in the worst possible way. Yeah. There's, there's a, if you look at the, the harm that alcohol causes, the, it's interesting that the, that the groups who are most harmed by alcohol actually tend to be the groups that have easy access to it. So at the moment, we see more and more hospital admissions for, say, middle-class women in their 50s who have been drinking large amounts of dry white wine. It's just it's on the table every night. It's They have plenty of spare cash and spare time. You know? yeah. So we're seeing those people harmed more. 20% of attendees at Alcoholics Anonymous are retirees because these people were working and then work ends and they have more free time and obviously they also have spare money. Responsibilities have fallen by the wayside. The children have left. They have more time. The alcohol's in the cabinet. They start drinking earlier and earlier during the day and it becomes a, a routine thing. Obviously, people who have suffered trauma or have difficulties in the past and maybe turn to the bottle are also harmed by alcohol. But if you look at the, the types of people that really suffer and die from it, it's a huge range of people. It's not just people who are traumatised and have, have gone that route. It's a really fascinating uh, philosophy you have. I think it's really, really practical. And, you know, and I get people a lot, and I'm one of them, who go, I really, you know, want to embrace the idea of not drinking, not drinking ever again. I think drinking's stupid. I hate it. I want to get over it. You know what? I can't really handle 12 steps. I don't really. They either don't like in practical terms. Or they are, I just don't like sitting in those rooms. I don't like engaging people on that level. And, and also commonly you get people who are, who are very, who are severely put off by the kind of idea behind it, you know, and some of the things, some of the points of view you have to kind of commit to. And I get that a lot uh, from people who, you know, I, I take a huge amount from learning about 12 step recovery and all of that. I think there's a, but I've never committed to 12 steps. And, and I've been asked a, a few times through this just in the last couple of weeks, how do I do this? But I don't want to go to AA. And people struggle to find other programs, I think, sometimes yeah. as, as an alternative, don't they? And so I think this is a, a really fantastic contribution. And, uh, you know, I, I hope it's helping people and they can go and buy the book now, can't they? 
Yeah, it's on, it's on Amazon. Thank you. Um, one thing I would say about Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the things it does incredibly well is it offers you a community of people who don't drink and mm. there's always meetings near you. Mm. I mean, I've been to Narcotics Anonymous meetings and I've been to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and it's just as simple as going on Google, finding something that's normally 10 minutes from your house and there seems to be loads of meetings and there's people there that don't drink. You know, if the only option to you is going to the pub with your mates and they all drink, it's very difficult to keep out of that world. Yeah. And if the other option is going to a room full of people and sitting quietly and not being judged and being part of a community of people that don't drink, then that's fantastic. And a lot of times, another thing that people haven't been don't know is it it can be a right laugh. People think it's all bleak and miserable, but sometimes you hear some absolutely some of the best anecdotes you've ever had in your life. It's I think it's also eye-opening. It's quite often for people in day-to-day life. In a drinking culture, you don't really see how many people have been so negatively affected by by alcohol. But when you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you realise there's a lot of people there, mm. a lot of people that have suffered either financial harm, physical harm, emotional harm, have had jobs fallen by the wayside, have had relationships affected by alcohol. I mean, there's a lot of people that alcohol has had a very negative effect on. I think it, alcohol is is a vast problem that the average person completely underestimates. And when you step back, you just think, Jesus Christ, this is this is a this is a rampant pandemic that affects yeah. us, uh, everyone all the time. And it and it's a shame that people don't see that. Um, but you know, you you mentioned tobacco earlier, and even twenty years ago, we wouldn't have been able to conceive. At that time, the the common thing that people said was, well, you'll never outlaw tobacco despite everything we know about it because big tobacco is just too rich and powerful and they'll never (laughs) let it happen. Yeah. And now those tobacco companies put out press releases every day almost advising people not to smoke. Yeah. So society can change relatively quickly and suddenly, can't it? Yeah. So, So we have a problem at the moment, I would say, that the alcohol companies are very strong. We don't have warning labels on on bottles. You don't see on the side of a champagne bottle, this product is addictive. You don't see on a bottle of whiskey, if you drink this entire bottle of whiskey, you can die. Yeah. Um, The warning labels are one thing, but we have an incredibly powerful alcohol industry. And if you think about the Houses of Parliament, for instance, I believe there's a number of bars in the Houses of Parliament with discounted alcohol Mm. sales. So if you're a member of Parliament, you get cheap wine. (laughs) Mm. That says it all, really. You know, the, the problem starts at the very top. And we have a government that is, I would say, pro-alcohol and anti-legislation against it. Mm. There's obviously taxation uh, in place on alcohol, but ultimately alcohol brings in so much money and is so valuable that I can't imagine government legislating effectively against it. And also with this problem I mentioned earlier that you've got the NHS and the Department of Health and Social Care saying you can drink up to 14 units a week. Imagine if they said, oh, you can, uh, you can take three hits of heroin every five days. <laughs> or you can, smoke, you can smoke 15 cigarettes a week. Uh-huh. Well, cigarettes, each cigarette you smoke makes you want another cigarette, so that's not going to work. And heroin makes you want to take more heroin, so that's not going to work. Imagine saying, oh, you can smoke seven crack rocks a month. I mean, if you smoke <laughs> some crack, you're going to smoke some more crack. <laughs> so 14 minutes a week of alcohol. Yeah. Okay, well, if I try to stick to 14 units... That's maybe like three pints on a Wednesday. You might go out saying to yourself, I'm only going to have three pints, but what's going to happen to you by the time you've had three pints? Your judgment's gone out the window. 
your self-control is screwed. You're going to have number four and possibly number five. Every time people go out to drink one, they drink two or three or four. It's just the nature of alcohol. And this is very, very bad advice. I don't imagine that the government will ever change its advice to say you should not consume alcohol. The other, thing the other thing that I've talked about recently is, you know, breast cancer. Alcohol causes breast cancer. Women drink alcohol, women get, get breast cancer. Everywhere you pour it from your mouth, your throat, your stomach and out of your anus, that entire journey that alcohol takes is where you get cancer from drinking. It's basically you're pouring a poison into your system and each of those places are where you get cancer. It's a cancer, it's a carcinogenic substance. And this idea that it's okay for you to moderate and to drink some, it has no benefit, it's poisonous and it's addictive and causes people to drink more and more. Wow, powerful stuff. Brilliant, beautifully put as well. Very, very powerful and, you know, militant, but I love it. I love your militancy. And um, I look forward to finishing the rest of your book um, and people should go out and buy it. And uh, listen, I really appreciate your time. Thank you ever so much for joining us on The Reset. Very kind of you to give me the time. Thanks again. Cheers. There you go. That was Charles Mosley. And you can find his book, Why We Shouldn't Drink Alcohol, on Amazon. He also offers addiction counselling at stop-now.uk, which is worth checking out if you're sober curious and weighing up your options. Thanks for listening, gang. Remember to share this pod, tell your mates, and subscribe if you haven't already to The Reset at samdelaney.substack.com. You get newsletters, advanced podcasts, all sorts of other cool stuff. Anyway, until next time, gang, be lucky. And remember, don't let the dickheads get you down. <laughs>